Gets it off. Sutter is up with it there. Right around in front. Score! Live. In the entertainment capital of the world. Leading goal scorer on the team. Drew one in front. Score! It's the T.C. Martin Show. A tie game on the power play. Hodgson was at the front of the net. They are even. It's time to get your daily prescription from the doctor. A power play goal by the captain. T.C. Martin. It's brushed on back by Richard Fuchs. Right up front. Younger fan inside of the net. Score! The doctor is now in. And welcome in. The doctor is in, but he's in Houston getting ready for some baseball because he gets a vacation. We don't. Ballpark Frank in the studio here with Numchuck behind the proverbial glasses, TC likes to say. And uh, hopefully an entertaining show coming your way today. Going to talk to Jim Gemma of the Las Vegas Aviators. Kind of get a feeling for what the mood is like in the clubhouse right now with the trade deadline coming up. What are the A's doing? What are the Aviators doing? Oh, hovering at about 500 right now, 37 and 35. They are back home and... The big news tonight, if you're an animal lover, Finn the Bat Dog coming back on the field. I actually just saw him out at that battle for Vegas. He was out there doing some stuff and uh, trying to catch a Frisbee. Finn is not a Frisbee dog, but he caught a couple of them. But uh, joining me today, a uh, gentleman that I got to get to know very well in the Vegas Golden Knights first season. We did the games together. We did the Vegas Golden Knights Insider Show together. We were on the concourse he was always looking for the stanchions to keep the people close, but not too close. My friend, my partner, season one, big uh, sports fan. And we always talked about doing a show about the not mainstream sports. And I figured with the Olympics going on, what better time to have him in? My good friend, Mr. Clayton Hamilton. Clayton, how you doing, man? I am excellent. Frank, it is great to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you in a, a more than a year, which I haven't. That's probably why I feel that way. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. I think we ran into each other at some casino or something once or something, just ex- exchanged courtesies or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it has definitely been a while. And, uh, you know, I know that you're uh, still following the sports scene a lot. And this is your time of year or time of every four years? Or is it two years since the winter and summer? And this year it was five and whatever. 2021 is... It, it, it's still weird to me every time when I watch the Olympics and I see signs everywhere saying 2020 Olympics, and it's like, yeah, but it's not 2020, but I understand they had everything already made up. But, uh, yeah, the Olympics and all these sports, right in your wheelhouse. It is right in my wheelhouse. I'm one of those people that likes to take a break from sports with more sports. Like, I can't get I can't watch The Bachelor. I can't watch any of the crappy TV shows that... NBC and ABC and CBS and all the and all the paywalls. Big Brother, Temptation Island, all, this stuff, all don't that do it stuff for you. <laughs> that they crank out. It's, it's garbage. So, I, I completely concur with all of that. So when I'm not watching baseball or basketball or football, I watch bobsled and track and field and all of the other Olympic sports. I follow them you know, 24-7 all, all the year round. So all right, well, We're going to look at what we've seen in the Olympics up to this point. We're going to preview some of the stuff still to come because I know track and field is big and that seems to be what a lot of people are uh, going to be looking at. As I mentioned, we're also speaking with Jim Gemma. But I wanted to do a little trip down memory lane for both of us okay. because we haven't been on, certainly on this show uh, together before. 
And even at uh, when we were doing the Vegas Golden Knights games, we weren't recapping stuff because we were doing everything currently that was going on there. But, you know, a lot of people say that they're tired of hearing about Season 1 with the Vegas Golden Knights. But with everything going on right now, and they did make it to the Stanley Cup Final, which they haven't done since Season 1, I figured maybe some people would enjoy that a little bit and maybe throw our thoughts and input in there about what it was like and just where Vegas is going because it seems like forever ago that Vegas didn't have a professional major league sports team. Now, they had the Aviators and, of course, the 51s and the Stars before that, the the same team, the Aviators, the baseball. There used to be the Flash, which was a roller, basically a, a, a roller derby type team. Uh, they've had a lot of different sports out here. The Golden Knights come in. Now we have the Aces. We st- We have the Aviators. We're talking about the NBA. We have the Silver Knights in a city where hockey's not going to work in that. And just what it was like for you when, when we did that first season, and I, I'm, I don't think I'm out of line to say that you and I were instrumental in really introducing hockey to a lot of people in this city of Las Vegas. Yeah, people followed the Thunder, and they followed the, you know, the Wranglers after that. But a lot of the people didn't know hockey that much, and their first experience was kind of listening to us and talking about it on the show and doing the games. And it, it was kind of new to us as well because we'd never covered an NHL team before. But it was quite an experience, and regardless of whatever happens, we will always have that to, uh, whether we need a resume or not, we can put it on that, or just we'll always have that in the memory banks that it's one of the things that they at least can't take away from us. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fun in that I don't think anybody really knew what we were getting ourselves into, not just us, but the you know the broadcast partner that we worked for at the time didn't know what they were getting themselves into. A, a lot of people in the in the front office at at the Golden Knights had maybe been there in different capacities at other organizations so it was kind of a fresh start uh, for everyone and and like you said Frank it was the first step into major professional sports because the Las Vegas Outlaws of the USFL just doesn't count. No, and and, and quite honestly at this time this city was kind of known as a UNLV town. Uh, and that's not to no disrespect again to the baseball who's been here forever and they've been a professional sport but not the major league level like you mentioned the outlaws there's been a lot of different teams out here but when the Vegas Golden Knights came and people thought they you know there wasn't even a stadium when we started talking about it there was no T-Mobile Arena there was no franchise here uh you know the NHL basically said yeah, okay, here, uh, sell this many season tickets and we'll talk to you then. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, goodbye, because it's never going to happen. And then they went way over that and everybody went, well, wait, Vegas is serious. Now you look at it today, now you have Seattle starting up next season as well. The All-Star game is going to be coming here. We have Allegiant Stadium with the Raiders, and we have all these other teams, but the Golden Knights really spearheaded everything. And the eyes of, I don't know if it was the entire world, I think as that season went on, it did become the entire world, but certainly the eyes of the entire United States was on Vegas saying, all right, is this going to work there? And it not only worked, it thrived to the point of, again, where now there's an AHL team out here as well. It's one of those things where you sort of look at what the landscape was in pro sports prior, and you think about, oh, it's it's Chicago, it's New York, it's Los Angeles, and where does an emerging market fit in? And something I think Las Vegas has been able to prove in a way that was started by those who came before with the Oklahoma City Thunder and their success, and you look at the Tennessee Titans and the success in Nashville, and then with the Predators, that these emerging 
emerging cities that have been overlooked because all oh, their population's not big enough or their media reach isn't big enough. And that's something they looked at Las Vegas. Oh, Las Vegas, it's just a suburb of Los Angeles. It's just a suburb of Phoenix that these emerging markets not a, are not only able to fill stadiums, but they're able to generate and drive television ratings and revenue. And I think that's going to be the lasting legacy of the Golden Knights is to say that, hey, a population base of X amount of size not just can fill T-Mobile Arena, but can drive television ratings. And that's what I think's turned heads of the NBA or Major League Baseball in terms of looking not just at Las Vegas, but places like Buffalo or you know Charlotte or other emerging television markets. And the other thing about it, too, was when Vegas came here, the thing that we kept on hearing, it's never going to work, or if it does work, the stadium's going to have to be at least 50% or more of the opposing team. People flying to Vegas to see their team. And certainly that first season, season one, we saw a lot of jerseys of the other teams, especially when the original six would come. The Blackhawks, the Rangers, the teams from Canada, when they would come to town. But as that season went on, and certainly now you see it, and you still see jerseys for the other teams, or sweaters, as hockey purists like to call them, but... We didn't see that that it the state it was sold out every game. The people that bought the season tickets were using them as investments when some other teams would come into town. They sell half a dozen games and they would get all their money back and then we saw it where they're like, Hey, you know what, we don't want you selling to these markets anymore. But it really did prove that you don't need the other teams' fans to come in, at least not in T-Mobile where it's, you know, 20,000 or whatever. Now, I'm curious to see what it is with the Raiders where all of a sudden you're talking 65,000 or whatever. How many of those will be the fans from other teams coming in? And I know the Raiders have a good fan base, but they also have a lot of people that don't like them because they are the Raiders. And, you know, if you're a fan of the Chiefs or the Broncos or somebody else, you have a disdain for them. But T-Mobile Arena, Vegas did show that a venue of that size, that if you put a good product, a competitive product on the ice, while it's nice to have some other people come in, I know Bill Foley would rather have them watching at a local bar or something like that, or someplace down in the plaza in the park area and everything, rather than being in the stadium, because there are enough Golden Knights fans out here to not only come there, but it's one of the highest-priced tickets in the league. And it certainly helped that first season that they were good. And and you kind of wonder what the the landscape or the story would have been if they had not been good. But you look at a team like the Arizona Diamondbacks when they first came into the league in baseball, everybody's looking at Phoenix. Could Phoenix support a Major League Baseball team? And the Diamondbacks were very good in their initial years and since then have fallen on very hard times. And now you're starting to see the question in Phoenix of, you know, I don't think the Diamondbacks are going anywhere, but just how, how profitable and how viable are the Diamondbacks when you, when you look in comparison to maybe some other expansion franchises. So for Vegas, the real question will be is if they become the Diamondbacks and they have a lull in a period of five or six or seven years where they are bottom feeders, what does that do to the fan base? Is it still going to be the same? Or is Vegas going to be one of those franchises that's going to go on a 14, 15, 16-year run of being competitive? And that's really the interesting story to follow over the next seasons. Yeah, and you don't even have to look to Major League Baseball for that. You could look, just stay in the NHL and look at the Coyotes down there. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't been that popular. There was a lot of talk that the Coyotes or the Hurricane at the time were going to be a team that might come here. That's when Bill Foley said, no, I don't want to retread to somebody else. I don't want somebody who already has a fan base and we're taking the team away from them. I 
don't want somebody that has people that don't like them. Although I don't really know how many people hate the Arizona Coyotes because they've never really been good enough to hate. They've had a couple decent teams here and there, but he did want that. And and that is an interesting point. It is something that I I don't know when that's going to happen because of the no state income tax, because people do like Vegas, because the players that have come here see like, oh, Summerlin, Greenville, there's some nice areas out here, you know. It's not just a strip and what we see on TV. So it does seem like it has that natural built thing where people want to come here. But we also know that in sports, and you see it right now with a team like you mentioned Buffalo before, with Jack Eichel and what happens and things like that. One or two bad contracts where you get a guy that doesn't hit that home run or, you know, all of a sudden it becomes a big dent in the salary cap that you can't overcome, and you can kind of fall to that. Season one, everybody thinks of, oh, the Vegas Golden Knights and the San Jose Sharks. That's the big rivalry. And it has become that way. It wasn't that in season one. It was the L.A. Kings. Mm -hmm. It was Drew Doughty talking, saying, I guarantee at the end of the season, look what's happened to them since then. They're a non-factor. They're competing with uh, Arizona, and I'm sorry, not Arizona, with Anaheim, and actually this year the Sharks as well because they haven't been, they weren't any good this year. But like, who's the worst in California or something like that? So there are those ebbs and flows. I, I think a lot of the Vegas Golden Knights fans are smart enough to know how lucky they've been to have a team that made the playoffs every year that goes to the Western Conference Finals or last year, whatever you want to call the thing, because it wasn't with the bubble and everything else and things that were different. but Well, not the bubble last year, but uh, the, the, the difference in the, in the divisions and that with the Canadian division and everything else. But I don't know what's going to happen when that downswing comes. And I think it's going to be a while, but eventually the salary cap or something's going to catch up with them. And the other thing about it is I think a lot of Golden Knights fans are now realizing, yeah, they watched Belmar and they watched Nate Schmidt and they watched some other guys leave and they weren't happy with it, but they thought it was a business. But with the recent Marc-Andre Fleury to Chicago deal, I think now people are really hit right between the eyes of this is a business and some of them really don't like the business side of hockey or a lot of pro sports. Yeah, there was a certain magic to season one. And one of the things that I thought that was exciting about season one was that there there didn't seem to be a rush in order to create tradition or to create something that that naturally grows and you talk about that rivalry with the los angeles kings in the first season and a lot of people wanted to push that the nhl was trying to push that it would be phoenix that it would be the coyotes yeah that that's why be, they put him in the they, game one and then the first they game wanted here to and create oh, that we'll take narrative. The two desert teams which are both not going to be very good but will make them play off each other right and and as you said just keyword playoff and playoff is where where rivalries are born and that that creation over the first couple of seasons of the Sharks being who they ran into in the playoffs, and then you throw into the mix and the recipe of, of Pete DeBoer coming over, being their head coach, the hated Pete DeBoer, and now now he's our guy, and how do we feel about that? That it's been a good story uh, this entire time that it's been here, and I think part of what's been good about it is that you, you couldn't pre-write it, and all of the things that you th- thought you knew, perhaps you didn't. I remember when uh, Gerard Gallant, 
was let go. And I thought to myself, like of all the crazy things that I could have thought that have, would have happened in sports that day, Gerard Gallant getting fired was not on it. He wouldn't have been in the top hundred things. Yeah, it wasn't that I on the thought. radar. Not at all. Not on the radar. And even when you look back, when you saw maybe there were writings on the wall that you, know, you weren't sure of the the future of Mark Andre Fleury, seeing Fleury traded the the other day, that was another thing that was like, how I don't, I couldn't comprehend that happening, especially in in season one, and to see that twist in the story, and, and I think that is going to be, I think that's going to be one of the things that the Golden Knights, in retrospect, will regret. Well, and again, you talk about everything that happened that season one that you couldn't write it. Mark Andre Fleury went down with a concussion in the Detroit game mm-hmm. in that season. He was gone for a long time. They were winning games with third and fourth string goalies. Oscar Dansk had the first shutout in Vegas Golden Knights history. You know, a lot of people don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Thomas Nosek had the first goal at T-Mobile Arena. He just left the team. He's no longer here. He's going to Boston. You know, William Carlson had 43 goals. He was one of the top goal scorers in the league. He didn't score anything with Columbus. Now they had him on a third or fourth line, so, you know, they didn't set him up for success. But everything that happened, it was like a fairy tale. It was like a movie with a really bad ending if you're a Golden Knights fan. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, you didn't take the homecoming queen to the prom, or you didn't win, hit the big home run to win the game. You lost. It was the movie with the sour ending. And what I remember, one of the things, I mean, I remember a lot from that season, but one of the things that I remember was in the playoffs, when they had to play the Kings in the first round, oh, boy, Drew Doughty's going to get his revenge. We're going to lose to them. And then they're like, oh, we crushed them. They won every game by one goal. Jonathan Quick was sensational in that series. It's not like they blew them off the ice, but they found ways to win to keep the story alive. And they did that every round. The people were like, oh, now we got to play the Sharks? Oh, we're done. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, we beat them. Oh, the Jets? Ryan Reeves, of all people, gets the goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was just crazy. By the time they made it to the finals, that was the first time that people weren't saying we're going to lose. It's like, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. They were starting to plant the parade route. They won game one. They scored the first goal in game two. And then the hammer came down. Alice Ovechkin decided to play defense. And Barry Trotz made some adjustments that, unfortunately, Gerard Gallant didn't have answers for. And Washington rolled on from that point. But they were, Vegas Golden Knights fans thought, okay, the fairy tale ends ending every round until the final. And then they were already, it's like, don't celebrate yet. This isn't done. Oh, no, we're going to win now. Well, that didn't happen, but it was still an incredible season. You think about uh, the Alex Tucker goal that that wasn't, and what be with the big save. What that would have done in terms of of changing the narrative of that series, but the whole season, and a huge credit to the Golden Knights fans and the people that that were there from the beginning, and the ones that joined on board, or the the people that held on to their team for two or three months, and eventually said, you know what, I like these guys. It was a real credit to the fans to be willing to accept that story, to go along for the ride, not knowing what was around the next curve, and I think that was part of the fun, at least for us, uh, in, in doing those games is we, we never knew what was going to happen next, and, and the thing just kept growing and building, and, and it was a whole lot of fun, and I'm glad I got to do it with you. How many times going to T-Mobile Arena, doing the home games, or even the road games out in some bar or something like that that we were doing it at, did we go there, and you'd see somebody wearing a Golden Knights jersey, 
And then they'd kind of look around and they'd lift up the jersey and show their Blackhawk jersey or Ranger jersey or Canadian jersey or something underneath it. Like, yeah, I'm still supporting this. Or you'd see a family of four or five. The dad's wearing his team jersey. The mom's wearing a Golden Knights. One of the kids is wearing a Golden Knights jersey. The other one's wearing the same jersey as dad or whatever. But it wasn't like the Mason-Dixon line or it wasn't like the, oh, you know, the North versus the South or something. It's like there was still, you know, they were all enjoying hockey. They were enjoying the first professional team. They could still root for one but not hate the other or whatever. And and I thought that was one of the, the dynamics too. Like a lot of parents were like, you know what? I'm I'm always going to be a this fan or that fan. But my kids, hey, they're in Vegas. I'm going to raise them this way. And then we, like you say, we even saw the adults that were fans of other teams that were like, all right, fine, I'm converting now. And one thing, too, that was that always strikes me is when you would meet fans from coming from out of town. And that's something that they had always said, that there wasn't there wasn't this hostility in the arena or the hostility on the plaza that you might find in Boston or Philadelphia or Edmonton. How about the guys from Quebec game one? Yeah, exactly. Those guys were awesome. <laughs> exactly. And they said that, you know, it was just sort of it was very welcoming. And I think, you know, Las Vegas, and it, given that it is an entertainment capital, it is a, a tourist town that... Uh, kudos to the fans for for being welcoming to to all of the other all the other fans from the other uh, teams and and making those guys feel welcome and it just created this really cool atmosphere at T-Mobile and it was really fun to be a part of. I'm sure we all have we both have a lot of memories from that first season and that what are some of your favorite memories of that season? And maybe something that you didn't care for so much. Because I know that, you know, we were kind of put in situations that weren't always the most comfortable. The concourse, it was cool meeting the people, but sometimes they were a little too close. Beer house, you know, we'd we'd miss the third period of games and have to go over there. So it was definitely a learning curve on a lot of different things. But overall... I believe the positives way outweighed the negatives. Yeah, they really did. And and it it was getting to know sort of the regulars, the fans that would come by that we would see every week and in uh, getting to say hello to them, getting to meet a lot of the folks and work with them on the national level, all of the friends that we made at uh, NHL Network and around the league and how welcoming they were to having a, a new partner uh, in, the, in the NHL. And, and I thought that was one of the things that I thought was, was really refreshing is I sort of expected the rest of the media world to be a little bit standoffish and be like, oh, it's, it's this Vegas people, but they were they were all very welcoming and very kind, and and in seeing like I said the the fans that kind of went out of the way, I still remember game one against Dallas. We were at one of the local bars, and I remember the guy. I remember the guy that had made a homemade zamboni out of a child's pedal car. Oh yeah, and he, and he, I forgot and he, about that. And he would come out and he would ride this thing around the bar, and I thought this. This is only game one, and this is this is going to get nuts, and it did. And then, of course, they won game one on James Neal goal, and then they well, won the second one. Or and- the amount of people that would come down to the event that they would have uh, in in Fremont Street, and just that sea of people that you you yep. couldn't. And we had media passes, and you get around the easy way, and it still wasn't easy to get around. How many people just packed in there? It was it was fantastic. It, it, another thing that I remember because I thought, and, and I've had it happen sporadically here and there. But when people would come up and, will you sign this? And they had a picture of you or me that right. they got out of, I don't even know where they got them sometimes. In that. And I'm like, wait, we're, we're just slubs on the radio or something like that. And it was, but you've, you kind of realize 
how much, you know, and they'd thank us for, you know, thanks for not speaking above me in that where, you know, I don't want to say we dumbed it down a little bit, but we tried to make it so that, you know, the hardcore fan would still enjoy it, but the novice fan that was just getting on a hockey would, would still understand it and, and be able to, to go along with us and things like that. And, and I remember that. The one thing that I really remember was, and I'd heard it my whole life, but you don't know because I hadn't been in an NHL locker room before, just the sincerity and down-to-earth goodness that most of these players had. Marc-Andre Fleury, one of the nicest guys in the world. Brad Hunt, every time we'd come in there, he'd say hi to us before we could say hi to him. Pierre-Edouard Belmar, who, you know, I wish him all the success in the world. You know, had the first, you know, his wife had the first baby as a Golden Knight. He'll always have the golden baby, as I mm-hmm. told him. He was like, yeah, that's right, but he never turned down an interview. Jonathan Marshall always told it exactly like it was. Even a guy like James Neal, who was kind of surly in that, he was surly if he said something stupid and he would call you out on it. I never held him for that. And I know you, you know, we're, we're both big Ohio State fans, but you became pretty good friends with John Merrill, the, the guy from Michigan. That's and right. Lucas Spiza talking about going around in his vestment. That, but you just you got to humanize these people. And for the most part, I can't think of one guy on that team that I didn't think was actually a pretty good down-to-earth genuine human being yeah i will uh and to this day i will continue to be a john merrill apologist but what a great guy he was i was very happy to see him uh, get a shot uh in the stanley cup final but yeah they were that 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 group and i think that that's part of what made the story for the fans and let people grasp onto this team is it was an easy group of folks to like and and I I'm, I'm really looking forward to and I hope that that you and I will get to be a part of it when there's a you know a 10 year reunion or a 20 year reunion of that of that first season uh, I, I hope we get to 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 see that uh, because it was such such an interesting and and such a fun group and and I will never forget I think until until the day that I die Frank of the most common question that I was asked the entire first season and do you know what that question was? Do you like hockey? I don't know. <laughs> no. It was by it was by middle-aged women asking me if I oh. could get their daughter a date with Alex Tuck. That's right. As soon as you said it, I'm wait, that's right. That was that it. Every, I, I, I can't oh, even yeah. tell you how many times I got that he question. He was the most wanted eligible bachelor in Vegas as far as the people that came I, up to it us. It would be two, three times a night when we were out in public. Can you get my daughter a date with Alex Tuck? Yeah, or just can we at least meet him? Because then she'll work the magic on her own. But, right. but yeah, there was definitely that. That was that was. I'll I'll always remember that. That was one of the one of the great joys of uh, of that because it was just funny every time. Every time it was funny. Yeah, and then of course when they came up with the Golden Misfits and all the other stuff that they did. I mean, again, it was a magical season, and it showed too because William Carlson had his career year. He's been good since then, but nothing like that year. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, guys like David Perron. I'm a Blackhawk fan. I'm from Chicago. I used to have season tickets. I found myself cheering for David Perron in St. Louis to win a Stanley Cup. I hate the St. Louis Blues. But because I got to know Perron, I was like, hey, he's a cool guy. I wish him a. I hope they actually win. Mm-hmm. And then I'd kind of turn around like, who said that? Oh, wait, that was the voice in my head doing it. Mm-hmm. Because these guys did win you over. Because they were like that. Because they were genuine guys. You know, I mean... I, the organization is the organization, and it is a business. 
But there's so many players that I've gotten to know in that. And I am curious to see what the locker room is going to be like now. Because we talk about that locker room season one, where there, no war, where there were no expectations, but then they made the expectations on themselves, and they kept on living up to it, and maybe in a lot of ways overachieving it. But that second season was different when they brought in some guys. It wasn't as loose. And then they brought in more guys, and they might be great hockey players, but the chemistry in the locker room was different. And now, the season coming up, with Marc-Andre Fleury not there, I'm not sure what the dynamic of that locker room is going to be. And again, we really, really didn't see the last season or two anyhow with all the Zoom calls and everything else. It wasn't, we didn't really get the inside look in the locker room. But just between season one and two, it was different. The thing that Marc-Andre Fleury does, and I still think he's a tremendous goalie, and is he worth $7 million a year? Well, last year he was. Mm-hmm. He won the Vezin Trophy, for crying out loud. I don't know if he is or not. But I know he brings a hell of a lot more to that team and that organization than to just what he does on the ice between the pipes. Yeah, he certainly, not just the face of the franchise, but he's sort of a quiet leader in the locker room. And he is one of those people that, you know, when he when he speaks, you listen because he doesn't speak all the time. You know, Jonathan Marchessault, I think he has a lot of things to say, but he also speaks all the time. So sometimes when Jonathan Marchessault, if he goes on a little bit of a ranch, you're like, ah, it's just Marchie being Marchie. But when... When Marc Andre Fleury would take the time to make a statement, it was it was calculated. It was for a reason, and I I also wonder who's going to take that corner locker that he had in the in the locker room. Is it will it be Robin Leonard? Yeah, will it it kind of seems like the starting goalie locker. Will it stay empty? Will Will someone take it? That that'll be a curious vision with the first time in the locker room yeah and, and like you mentioned mark andre fleury was he wasn't afraid to talk or nothing like that mm-hmm. but he would rather talk about driving his cars or his family or something oh yeah like he would that just talk about stuff. his kids i mean that's... it's like yeah I, I talk hockey all the time mm-hmm. let's talk about something else you know i took my car out on the speedway the other day and went on <laughs> took a couple laps around the track he feels the need for speed quite a bit mm-hmm. and, and, he, did... and he still wants to score that goal in a game I just remember him thinking too. It was the it was the weirdest and the coolest thing to have chocolate Andre Fleury that that they made uh, I can't remember at the Bellagio. Which, at the Bellagio yeah. yeah, and he, he didn't even know about it, and we told him about it, and he went down there and took a selfie with it. And uh, but yeah, just things like that just sort of tripped him out. Well, yeah, and, and when you find out when you walk in the locker room and you're trying to talk to someone, they go, "Hey, can you move aside? I'm trying to watch this golf event or a basketball <laughs> game." And then you realize it's like they're they're just like us. Mm-hmm. They watch other sports in that too. You know, William Carlson was always talking soccer with. Chris Chapman mm-hmm. or whatever you know or you know that they love every other sport as well you know and and they have their country pride and things so and you know that sometimes they had little side bets amongst each other on a NC you know John Merrill was betting somebody on the NCAA tournament or mm-hmm. this one was betting on the World Cup or the Euro Cup or different things so yeah and and that was one of the coolest things to me was just humanizing them and finding out you know what? They're down-to-earth people that just happen to be really good at hockey. In, in finding out the, the ins and outs and just how important their team ranking in the ping-pong tournament was. Like, that, that was right. the, how important that was, how, what their ranking was. And, and how Marsha Show refused to lose at anything, even if it was Nerf basketball. Mm-hmm. you you got to play again. You got to go again. Yeah, you'd almost have to throw a game to 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 let him leave you alone. From what the players told us, and I still remember Pierre Edward Belmar at practice would would look at the side for for somebody standing next to the glass who wasn't paying attention, who was looking at their phone, and then he would just intentionally shoot a puck right at the glass and yeah. make them jump. And that was just the most fun thing for him, and it was fun for me too. Yeah, no, I think we all had a great time. 
I, I never thought I'd say that I had a great time the year that I broke my neck, but I had a great time that season. All right, Frank Carnish, Ballpark Frank, <laughs> along with Clayton Hamilton, T.C. Martin down in Houston, checking out a little baseball. We'll have Jim Gemma at the top of the hour talking a little aviators and what's going on in Major League Baseball. But also the Olympics are here. Clayton is a lover of the Olympics, as am I. Up a lot of late nights watching a lot of different events. Uh, team handball on today, women's team handball, a pretty good match going on. Water polo, the United States blow it against Italy. Hey, we got time to talk about all that stuff. Little Olympic talk when we come back. T.C. Martin Show, tcmartinshow.com. Turn your head and cough. Here's the doctor, T.C. Martin. And the gold medal goes to T.C. Martin for finding a way to get people to do his show when he goes on vacation, and they don't. So about that, man? Yeah, well, I guess I was one of those suckers born every minute. T.C. Martin Show, Ballpark Frank sitting in, numbchuck behind the glass. My good friend, Mr. Clayton Hamilton, joining me on today's show. Talked a little bit about VGK and... Uh, Vegas and actually we never really got into that much of the, the whole scene mm-hmm. the whole scene of where Vegas is going to be and so so let's really quick do that before we get to okay. the Olympics where do you see Vegas in five years from now because ten years ago if you would have said that there was going to be the NHL the NFL an AHL team a WNBA team people would have said well that's not going to happen this quick or whatever and yet. Here we are. The Golden Knights are going in season five? five. I, I feel like uh, the NBA coming here makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that if the NBA can find the right minority ownership group in order to have a, uh, a footprint on, on a new franchise, I think that that's something that they're going to go forward with in both Seattle and here in Las Vegas. Uh, put them both in the West, kick uh, Minnesota to the East. But I think that and this might be an odd take on where the future lies of Las Vegas, but I, I really feel like UNLV needs to figure out what it is. Like UNLV has to make a decision on what are they. Are they a fledgling mid-major? Are they going to be a basketball school? Are they going to be a football school? Are they going to try and be both? Because there's nothing wrong with being Indiana. There's nothing wrong with being North Carolina and saying, you know what, we're going to put all in on our basketball program and whatever happens in the football program happens. Because the shift to a larger representation in the Power Five is coming and it's happening. And UNLV needs to figure out how to not be left out. When that does happen, Oakland A's, they come in here or not? I think they are. What's too much for the city? We talked about the Vegas Golden Knights. Oh, it's never going to work. Well, it's thriving. The Silver Knights come to town. Well, that's AHL tickets aren't as much. Now we have an NFL team as well. We did talk about, we talked about a lot of smaller cities, but every one of those smaller cities still have other towns and, you know, cities in that around them where there's mm-hmm. a lot more to go. Vegas isn't necessarily a driving destination, although it looks that way every weekend when you mm-hmm. see the, car, the cars from California and that. Can Vegas actually support Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL? I mean, that's a lot for a city that had none of that stuff before. If, the corporate, if there's corporate money involved in everything, Frank, then absolutely they can. Because when you look at a baseball 
team, where they really drive and generate that revenue is from the corporate season ticket holders, from the corporate sponsorship, and from the television deal. And if they can get those, then it's almost ancillary the other amount of ticket sales that you have, particularly if you build your business model around a 36,000-seat stadium or so. You know, if you're trying to, to, to fill and need 55000 in order to survive on your business model, then you're going to run into a problem. But if, you, if you're one of those 36,000-seat stadiums that can survive uh, with a good TV deal, then I think it's possible. And when you talk about 36,000 people, a lot of people are thinking, well, that's nothing. That's basically Wrigley Field. Yeah, it's Wrigley and, and, and the Field. Cubs do okay. And here's the thing. You don't even need 36,000 people to show up. You need to sell 36,000 seats. And that's where it goes to that corporate money that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to buy X amount of seats and we're going to give them away or, or casino properties are going to buy them and they're going to give them away. It doesn't matter who sits in them or if anybody sits in them. It only matters that they're corporately purchased and sold. Same with your luxury boxes. It doesn't matter there's two people in there it's it is is it sold and if you can have that proper corporate money then you can survive and that's the that's the trouble tampa has tampa doesn't have that corporate backing in order for them to fill their 36 or 38 thousand seat stadium which is why tampa's looking at oh maybe montreal maybe buffalo maybe they have to go somewhere else where a, a city like you know Chicago or Boston or you know they have those thirty six thousand seat stadiums they do just fine. Yeah, and Wrigley Field is actually like forty one or whatever mm-hmm. because they have done some, some expansion there. But again, around that size or whatever, and that's the thing that I argue with people all the time is it's like everybody goes, oh well, you know they're not going to survive out here. You don't have to be the Yankees or the Red Sox or that you don't have to sell out every game, you know, because not every team is that. You know, can you compete with some of the other people? A mid level team still does okay, and if you win, more people are going to show up. By the way, Derek Stevens. Uh, of course, down at Circa, uh, just made a statement that the A's will be coming here to Vegas. So we'll see how all of that plays out, and uh, you know, and 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 see what transpires from that. But my concern, I hope that they don't overgrow it too much and oversaturate. Mm-hmm. But right now, it seems like this city is just thirsty for anything they could get. They are, and I would really like to see UNLV make that decision to be relevant, and they can, and they have been in the past. But if UNLV would just put its focus on becoming a prominent basketball school again, then you can survive in a place like the Pac-12. Because you know what? Indiana does just fine in the Big Ten being a really good football school that, or I'm sorry, a really good basketball school that's competitive in the Olympic sports and they put an okay football product on every so often. Same with North Carolina. And UNLV can be that. UNLV can be a destination school in basketball. But you have to make that decision that you are going to be a basketball school. You're going to be UConn. And that's fine, UNLV. But you have to make that decision instead of splitting hairs all over the place. And you mentioned Indiana being good in some of the Olympic sports. One of those sports that Indiana known for swimming. Well, Vegas does have a connection there with Erica Sullivan getting a silver medal in, a, in her race. Uh, some other swimmers now training in Las Vegas. The area here, it's getting known for that. You wouldn't necessarily think of swimmers coming from the desert, but then you wouldn't think of them coming from Seward, Alaska either. So Mm -hmm. it shows if there's a pool there and somebody's got the talent that they can still get the job done. Let's uh, switch it over to the Olympics a little bit. I know you've been watching a lot of it. I've been watching everything from from three-on-three basketball to fencing to soccer to the tennis, even though it is the big names, because I'm curious to see what Novak Djokovic does. Uh, A lot of different things, even skateboarding, where I guess a couple 
13-year-olds won some gold medals. Badminton there, surfing, the first medal goes to a girl from Honolulu. What have been your impressions of the Olympics thus far, and what do you think of the coverage of the Olympics? Because I've heard some people not too happy with that. I think it's been okay. I don't think it's been stellar. I would do some changes, but... They didn't give me a billion dollars to make those decisions. Uh, as far as the coverage goes, I, I'm i a little annoyed with NBC's decision that they've made and how they're going to cover them. And it is a challenge because of the time difference. And But they have multiple outlets. And I thought they've been using their multiple outlets well in the fact that it's very easy to find just about any one of the sports that you want. The problem that I have is... NBC's a little bit of their greed in pushing things that people want to watch to their paywall. So if you look at men's basketball, which is a driving force for the ratings and what a lot of people want to see included, they've pushed that to Peacock, right? And Peacock, you have to have your, you know, you have to get it over your internet. You got to pay them a monthly fee in order for you to get peacock so they're driving what people want to watch same thing with women's gymnastics coverage live coverage men's gymnastics they're driving that to the paywall which is which bothers me because they've done that with their olympic sports they have the olympic channel you're supposed to be able to watch bobsled you're supposed to be able to watch skiing all of those winter sports they've pushed those to the paywall as well which is the future of television and that's what drives me crazy frank because i don't want to watch something on my phone I don't want to watch it on my computer. Yeah, there's a reason I have a big screen TV at home, to it, watch stuff on the big screen. Exactly. And, and if, if you want to put it on Peacock and you want to make Peacock a premium channel and you want me to pay $4 a month for it, that's fine. Make it available on Dish. Make it available on DirecTV or Cox so that I can get it on my, on my television. I'll pay your $4 a month, but don't make me watch it on my phone and don't make me watch it on my computer. And knowing that you're trying to drive me to your paywall by putting the sports that I want to see on that, it gives me a bad taste in my mouth about NBC and the way that they've done their coverage. And I, and I typically like NBC and think that they do sports better than anyone else. I want to throw this in, too, because uh, you just kind of brought up a point that I'm a little bit angry about, but I didn't even realize it until you mentioned that, because I've kind of put it in the back of my mind, like, well, they're doing the best they can. You're right. They're not showing some of the primetime stuff, and when they do, you already know the results and that kind of stuff, unless you do get it on Peacock or something. But the other thing that they do a lot, like the three-on-three women's basketball, they won the gold medal. Kudos to them. Good job. I think three-on-three needs a lot of work as far as their rules, and you get two free throws after so many fouls, Mm -hmm. even if you're taking a one-point or this. I I, I think they need to tweak that game a lot to make it more entertaining and to quite frankly make it look like... I've played in three-on-three basketball tournaments that I thought were better played than I saw in some of the Olympic stuff here. But then they showed it live, and I saw it live at, like, whatever, 6 o'clock in the morning. Then they showed it again in the morning. Then they showed it again in the afternoon. Then they showed it again that night. Okay, I've already seen this. Now, I know that maybe, some, okay, you want a primetime this and that, but you showed the same event, and then the men's around it, the semifinals that went around it and this and that. You've showed the same thing like four or five times instead of showing me something new that I couldn't catch, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a soccer game or, a, you know, the, the badminton, the table tennis, this, that, and the other. And, again, I surf around, and one thing that I always look at is what's a repeat, what's live. And then the other thing that drives me crazy is when it says – three-on-three basketball, and you tune in, and there's fencing on or there's something, and it's not three-on-three basketball. Okay, I know that maybe you're not going to show that the whole time, that, that, but then show the time slot of the other things going on. It's going to be three-on-three basketball. It's going to be BMX riding mm-hmm. along with the other stuff. 
show me what I'm really going to watch because I'm kind of dependent on looking at the bottom of the ticker thing there on your on your description of what you're showing to see where I want to go on the different channels that I do have without Peacock. Yeah, and that that's the thing that's been frustrating for me because I've run into that too. I DVR just about everything and then go back through and watch so that I can I can skip all the commercials and I can, you know, skip something that I've already seen because they do the repeats and their their descriptions versus what they're actually showing has been a problem. And I'm with you on that that they have shown, you know, beach volleyball, they'll show Team USA and they'll show the same game four times, but why not show me Marta Benengati in Italy? Why not show me Duda from uh, from Brazil. Give me some of those other pool matches instead in that slot of something that's repeated three and four times. And something else that they've had trouble with this time around, and and I, I don't know if it's because of all of the travel restrictions that they had had in the past year. It's very challenging what they're trying to do in order to get these broadcasts and, and broadcasting a lot of things from the U.S. And, and they have a studio in Connecticut instead of having everybody in Tokyo. It's part of what makes the Olympics interesting in terms of watching for somebody that doesn't follow it all year round. I follow it, you know, all four years. I know a lot about the players that are involved. But for a lot of people, it's a it's learning about who they're watching and learning those stories. And particularly when you have a time delay and you have time as a director and producer to craft the storyline of the sport, they're not doing that anymore. It, it's almost like they they put it on there and they cut to a commercial and then they come back and you've missed something instead of crafting that story. And the reason they're doing that, Frank, is because they want you to watch it on their paywall on the Internet and on your phone where you don't have that break. But the other night, men synchronized uh, diving. The Mexican team was in contention the whole night. They cut a commercial break every time that Mexico came on to dive. You missed every one of their dives until the very last one where they were going for a medal craft that story like you had time to take your break around whatever other you know fifth or sixth or seventh place diver there was to create the story and you would think that mexico would be a popular thing to show in this country more than belarus or something else so craft the story especially when you're running something on tape delay and and when you say something like that that actually brings me to something that i was checking out this morning because if you don't want a spoiler alert, I'm about to give the results of the women's all-around gymnastics final here. So I don't think it's a big secret because it's been blasted all over the place. Simone Biles obviously did not compete. We know that she stepped out because of mental health issues. But Suni Lee won the gold medal. She won the all-around. So congratulations to her. I believe it's the fifth straight Olympics now where the United States has won the all-around title in women's gymnastics. Suni Lee is a good story. And I kind of knew her story because, like you, mm-hmm. I follow some of these sports, the track and field, the women's gymnastics, things like that. Maybe not as, you know, the fencing and stuff like that like you do, but I watch a lot of these other ancillary sports, badminton, table tennis, things like that. I had to go to YouTube and watch the part that they put on SUNY Lee on from Peacock TV because mm-hmm. that's where they showed her story, you know. Her dad made a two, took a two-by-four and made a balance beam for her when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of money. She couldn't go to one of the elite gymnastics classes. Her father fell out of a tree and broke his back two days before the, the USA trials mm-hmm. happened in 2019. She didn't want to go. He said, no, go for yourself and compete for me as well. She's got a very interesting story. 
her family story, everything else. And most Olympians do have it all around. But it's a story that, like you said, they could have crafted that in and shown that. And maybe they will tonight because mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what they're going to show. But if you wanted to see it up to this point and you don't know Suni Lee, mm-hmm. she's been a tremendous gymnast for a while now. But her story is interesting. And now she's once again, she is the household name from gymnastics for this Olympics for the USA. And it's not just crafting the athlete's story. It's crafting the story of the event. And when you look at somebody like Rebecca Andrade, who finished second, she's the uh, gymnast from Brazil. She finished second in qualifying. And it was was nip and tuck back and forth between the two. Now, you knew as a producer or director of that that she was going to be a story. So when they did the women's coverage of the team event in the qualifying, they showed most of the U.S. event. They didn't show Grace McCallum. They missed her on two apparatus, right? So they... They, they showed Russia because they were in the same group, but they ignored the entire rest of the field. So they ignored the gymnast from China. They ignored the gymnast from Japan. They ignored, ignored Rebecca Andrade, who's going to be a story in this all around. So if you're NBC, you have to craft that story, Frank, in preliminaries. You have to craft that story in the team competition of following these players who are going to be important later instead of just maybe dropping her in. And, and I'll be curious to see how they do the coverage in primetime this evening i'll still watch it even though i know what happened just to see how they how they tell that story but that's the part that's missing in these olympics is you have to tell the story two days before the story is relevant and they're not doing that in the way that bob costas used to do it in, in nbc or jim the great jim mckay at uh, at abc when they originally had it and that's been my main concern and I'm, I'm hopeful that this is an aberration that it is caused by the the time difference and by the constrictions that the NBC has in terms of their crew, I hope that that comes back for Beijing uh, Winter Olympics 2022. And I'm not going to give them a mulligan on this, but I'm going to say my gut feeling is that in the women's gymnastics, when Simone Biles dropped out, they probably had so much coverage ready for her and her story and everything else that they were throwing a curveball that they weren't ready to hit. Mm-hmm. They were looking fastball all the way, and all of a sudden Simone Biles is out, and you're like, oh, well, not, who are we going to cover? What we don't have stories on these other people. They didn't have a plan B is what it kind of sounds like to me. It was like, well, Simone's going to win everything, so we're just going to focus on her, and yeah, we'll have a little something on, you know, uh, Suni Lee because yeah she's going to be right up there as well but Simone was I'm sure the main focus mm-hmm. and with her not in it all of a sudden it's like oh it's would have been like years ago covering track and field and what do you mean Carl Lewis isn't competing or something so because she was the women's gymnastic I mean for crying out loud she had a goat on her leotard yeah she, she did <laughs> she bought into a lot of the things that that are you know that are now bothering that her are bothering in a lot her. of ways so it, and again whether she was talked into it or whatever the reason or whatever but yeah i mean she did have the weight of the world and she did and and i, I talked with tc about this a little bit but i want to get your thoughts because she did before this olympics she talked about how she'd never competed in an empty arena She'd never competed without her family and friends right there to give her that support and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's looking around, and I'm sure she loves her teammates. I'm sure Suni Lee and the other girls are very close. But she's still looking like, I'm a woman on this team of young teenage girls. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a different vibe age-wise, crowd-wise expectation wise there were expectations before but this year it was a given if you would have said what's the what's the one clearest choice for olympic gold this year most people probably said of going into this olympics 
equal Simone Biles. Yeah, and she, it, I think there's a lot to that about that expectation of the, a lot of the girls looking up to her, other than Michaela Skinner, who's also 24, and, and she had been with her in Rio. When you look at what what Simone's responsibilities were in Rio. Simone's responsibilities in Rio were just Simone. And Allie Raisman was really the the captain of that team. Right. And she took on all of those extra things. And Laura that, Hernandez kind of became the cute little one mm-hmm. that they talked about on the side, that she and, was going to be somebody don't forget, in the future. Don't forget that. Gabby Douglas was on that. She, yeah, was, a, exactly. she was a two-time yeah, gold medalist. She was kind of the Simone Biles of that team. Right. So so Simone just got to do Simone without sort of the these other expectations. And you think about somebody like uh, you know Sophia Kennan of, of Team USA that was able to to go in tennis and chose not to because she couldn't take her family or friends or anybody she right. had to go by herself and said you know what hey that's not for me i can't i can't i can't deal with being alone and you wonder if that's something that really sort of hit simone in a way that she wasn't prepared for all right tc martin show tcmartinshow.com ballpark frank my good friend mr clayton hamilton num check behind the board tc down in houston for a couple of days hope he's got some bug spray there's a lot of mosquitoes down there it's kind of like Vegas, not quite as hot, but with a lot of humidity. Mm, yeah. You know, my brother lived there for a little while. I prefer the Dallas area. Yeah, I do too. I'm Dallas if you're going to go in Texas. So, all right. When we come back, we're going to still talk about some more Olympics and events still coming up, track and field. I know Clayton's all over that. Maybe try to slip in some NBA or some other stuff as well as the draft is coming up. But coming up next, my good friend, Mr. Jim Gemma from the Las Vegas Aviators. We'll talk a little baseball in the trade deadline coming up, too. Ballpark Frank, Clayton Hamilton, it's the T.C. Martin Show, tcmartinshow.com. Entertainment capital of the world. It's the TC Martin Show. Boat lines it into left field. A base hit. Cespedes will score, and the Oakland A's walk off with Game Two of the ALDS. It's time to get your daily prescription from the doctor, T.C. Martin. And Turner in the air, center field, that ball's hit well. Martinez on the run, this is way back, and it is gone! It is a walk-off home run for Justin Turner! The doctor is now in. Well, the doctor's in. He's in Houston once again. Ballpark Frank sitting in the hot seat for the next couple days. My good friend, Mr. Clayton Hamilton, joining me today. Some Olympic talk and uh, lots of other sports as well. Numchuck behind the proverbial glass. Love John Fogarty. Centerfield, put me in. Saw John Fogarty over at the win. If you want to go see a show that's not one of the big high budget or it's not going to be like, you know, $5,000 to go see the Stones or something like that. Uh, if, if you like that music, very entertaining Kind of nice laid-back evening. I, I think he's going to be doing a residency there again soon. So, And he does play center field, and his son actually joins him on stage. And it's always nice to hear somebody that sounds as good live as they do on Memorex. Yeah, e- even at his uh, advanced stage. We're going to be speaking with Jim Gemma here in a little bit. But real quick, the NBA draft is tonight. Want to get your quick thoughts on that because I know you have some. What are you most looking forward to? What are you most curious about? Because, you know, we talk about the draft a lot, and it seems like... You know, 
there's not that surefire number one guy anymore. Some of the guys a little bit deeper in the draft could be the next Jokic or Giannis or Giannis or something mm-hmm. like that. I think I said Giannis. Giannis, Giannis of Giannis. course. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because some of these Europeans and the three-point shot and some guys are a little bit later bloomers on that kind of stuff today, it seems like you've got to be a, not only a scout, but you've got to be kind of that guy that can uh, look forward to see, like, all right, who's going to develop and be good, not necessarily who's good right now. Yeah, you can talk about Cade Cunningham all day out of Oklahoma State, probably going to go number one to the Pistons. But um, for me, it's really going to be in round two, and I'm looking to Iowa at two guys that I think can be really good impact players, and I don't know if either one of them is going to get drafted tonight. And if they do, it's going to be second round, and they could just be uh, non-roster invitee free agents. And that's uh, NCAA Player of the Year, Luca Gar. Garza, and then his teammate Joe Westcamp. And Joe Westcamp is one of those guys that he can be a Ryan Archidiacono. He plays good defense, hits the three. He's going to be really valuable in an NBA structure. But when you put him through the rigors of a combine, he's probably not a guy that really stands out. But I think he's going to have a really nice and good career, and I just wonder if he's going to get drafted. And I said the same with Luka Garza, that if he goes to the right system, Luka Garza, you can get another Jokic. If he goes to the wrong system, you're going to get another Frank Kaminsky. And that, and that's a wide berth between Nikola Jokic and Frank Kaminsky. It's and, kind of a Grand Canyon. Yeah, there. And, and so you wonder with a guy like Luka Garza, who some people are like, surefire, can't miss, hard worker, hits the three uh can has post moves can rebound distributes you know from the top of the key and and down low and then you have other guys that say he's big he's slow he's going to foul too much uh guys are going to run all over him luca garza is going to be a bust and and that's the guy that i want to see go to a really really good situation i don't think he's going to end up in denver denver needs a wing three and d guy but if you could imagine if you could have Jokic and garza and you could have garza learn from Jokic, and you don't have to change your set when you go to the second string and your second unit, I, I would just love to see what could happen to him, Mike Malone, Nikola Jokic in Denver. Don't think it's going to happen, but it's my dream. What resonated from me during that um, that, that uh, assessment that you gave of it, Luca Garza, player of the year, but you don't know if he's going to be drafted. Yeah, that, yeah, you don't have to look any farther than that to know what a crazy time we are in for the draft. Yeah, that is that is nuts. <laughs> like Luca Garza, he's so good at so many things that are really important in the NBA right now. And to see him get a shot, maybe on set on a second unit team like Denver, they tried with a guy like Isaiah Hartenstein, who's not Luca Garza. Uh, I, I I really I I want to see where he goes tonight if he goes anywhere. Yeah, and, and again, remember, it's not just like foreign players in that, too, that are question marks. A guy like Steph Curry, a lot of people mm-hmm. peep up past on somebody like that because they didn't know what he was going to be. The three-point line, the NBA game, and the NBA game, just like we're saying, oh, the Team USA is struggling a little bit in the Olympics right now because they don't know the international game. Well, the NBA is different from the international game. It's also a lot different than the college game. Oh, so much different. And so it's going to be fascinating, uh, the NBA draft. My only sadness is that you know the Olympics are on tonight. Normally, I would be 100% be- beginning of the night to the end coverage of the NBA draft. But tonight, I'll just read about it. I'm going to watch women's gymnastics. Well, you know, another thing that's always fascinating is trade deadline in any sport. Major League Baseball trade deadline is coming up. So I thought this is a perfect chance to get on a good friend of mine. I've known this gentleman for years and years from the Stars days 
to the 51s days, now the Aviators days. Always been a uh, pleasure to work with and uh, consider him a good friend. My buddy, Mr. Jim Gemma with the Aviators. Jim, thanks for making time today. How you doing out there? Is the uh, Aviators back home for a spell? Frank, uh, thanks for always having me on. Gosh, Las Vegas Stars. That's how long we've known each other. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, when John Sandler used to do the games in that, and it was in the old KORK studios. <laughs> yes, and uh, the music in the background is uh, terrific. I appreciate that. Well, I, I told Numchuck, make sure you got some <laughs> sticks ready to go, because I have to say this. I'm from Chicago. I saw sticks for fifty cents and a can of uh, a can of food at the Crystal Lake Drive-in before they were anybody. You're the biggest sticks fan I know. <laughs> I've heard that from people. Uh, I have somebody that they played at their high school graduation back in Chicago when they were in high school. So uh, yeah, I mean that band's been together since the early '70s. The Panazzo brothers and Dennis the Young and uh, James Young. Those were the original members and. You know, Tommy Shaw's been with them since 1976, but I know I didn't call you about sticks, but I appreciate the time on them. <laughs> no, but uh, we did call you about some baseball, and want to ask you this here. With the trade deadline looming and, you know, you know the, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, does that change the dynamics and the feeling around the team in that? Are guys on eggshells a little bit more? Are, are they looking forward to stuff going on? Are they just kind of waiting for that date to pass so they can 100% focus on baseball again? Or are they always focused on baseball because that's what they do and whatever is going to happen is going to happen? I'm sure uh, they all have that in the back of their mind, especially when uh, Greg Dykeman, who's one of the top prospects of the A's basically got traded in the ninth inning uh, three nights ago in Salt Lake and they had to pull him from the game and uh, I'm a big Jesus Lasardo fan but not really surprised they traded him uh, obviously they got Marte for him so this thing's over tomorrow at 1 p.m. and uh, I don't know if any of these guys in AAA are going to be affected if there are any more moves but you know crazier things have happened uh, Billy Bean and David Force the GM of the A's I mean they they wheel and deal and uh, they have the A's in position to make the playoffs again. So that's what the minor leagues are primarily for is player development. Just see how many prospects the Yankees have had, uh, you know, to get Joey Gallo. And that's how it works. And that's how the Padres have gotten so good. And uh, right now, you know, our team's 37 and 35. You know, minor league baseball is just happy to be back on the field uh, in 2021. We're 72 games in. We have 58 left. We're playing 130 this year. We're just trying to barrel through the last two months uh, obviously what's going on now so uh with everything with the cdc and our guys have uh, done a great job uh persevering to this point we just got to keep going uh, day by day on this jim i, I wanted to uh, get your thoughts if you could if you could pull back the curtain for us on an, an event like uh, the andrew chafin trade where greg dykeman gets travel uh, gets traded what is that process like for you in a job that you have like, how much advance notice do you get do you find out when we find out on twitter what is your process in terms of what you find out, and then what steps do you have to take in your position when a guy gets traded? This is not a knock against the A's. It's with the other 29 teams. I probably hear about it 30 seconds before you guys do. So that's just the way it is. I'm, I'm the go-between here in Las Vegas. I work with the A's. I'm the go-between between our manager, player development, and just make sure uh, the AAA roster is correct. So a lot of times I'll find out about it the uh, same time uh, everyone else does. But the fact of the matter, you know, Greg Dykeman is the ninth top prospect, and he got traded. But 
the marks of a good trade in all all sports is uh, both teams should get good people in return, and then that's a mark of a good trade. So, in your experience, was the uh, was the Jonah Hill scene in uh, in Moneyball when he tries to, to trade Carlos Pena? Is that is that a correct assessment of the way things happen? Oh, I'm sure stuff wheels and deals like that. Uh, uh, we love uh, Billy Bean here. That movie was awesome. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. But Billy Bean's been through here f- a few times. Uh, Billy Bean is one of the top executives in all of MLB, as well as uh, David Force, uh, the GM. You know, the A's uh, keep winning. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of wheeling and dealing going on the last couple weeks. Of course, the deadline's over tomorrow. You know, with the advent of 2021, I'm not clear on the non-waiver thing in August. I think you can still do that. But as far as uh, distinct trades, uh, the deadline's tomorrow. Ballpark Frank, Clayton Hamilton sitting in, T.C. Martin Show. Check it out at tcmartinshow.com. Join right now with a good friend of mine uh, with the Las Vegas Aviators. Been with the club for a long, long time. Jim Gemma, of course, going back to the Stars, the 51s, now the Aviators. Jim, you mentioned how this year you're just trying to soldier through it and get things done. And, you know, so far so good. Everything uh, has been going well out there. Uh, the team competitive at 37 and 35, like you mentioned. I believe they're two games over 500 at home, 18 and 18 on the road. But not to try to bring anything down on this, how difficult was last season? I mean, I know that nobody expected a season where there'd be no minor league baseball, but that's what we saw. I mean, how was that? Uh, how difficult was that to get through? And how exhilarating was it to know that this year again you would be back on the field and playing in front of fans? And of course, we still don't know what's going on with that either. There's mask mandates, and there's not a mask mandate. Then there's capacity, and then there's not. So there's still challenging times ahead. But it's got to feel good to at least be back on the field and rolling again. Yeah, we have a two-week homestand through uh, August 10th. Once we get through that, you know, we're pretty much done with the season for us. We're only we're 80 percent through. We have just 17 home games left, 29 on the road. So we're basically taking this day by day. But it's just great we're talking about this stuff, trade deadlines, what our record is, 37 and 35. Guys are just so excited to be back on the field between the chalk lines. Last year, um, I know a lot of businesses and. Uh, Industries were really hurt, but really, minor league baseball uh, industry in 2020 got destroyed. Uh, there's plain and simple. We're the only professional team in Las Vegas that did not play last year. Uh, there's the other teams did play in, in bubbles. They got to play. We didn't get to play. Uh, the, the industry hopefully is going to get that bipartisan bill, which needs to be done. For see, a lot of minor league teams are not owned. Uh, you know, we have a great ownership group, the Howard Hughes Corporation, and. I want to tell you, we're all grateful. They paid us through the entire 2020 season, and not a lot of minor league teams did that. They, uh, a lot of minor league teams had to, uh, you know, curtail, uh, you know, scale down their front offices. They're now back up and running. But it was a real trying time for sports and entertainment, period. We're the sports, uh, we're the entertainment capital of the world. You see how bad it hit the, uh, the strip with the shows and the concerts. And, and, and the sporting events. So, you know, we're back now. So hopefully, uh, you know, with the vaccine rollout, no matter what your uh, opinion is on it, that's the only reason why we're playing since April was because of the vaccine rollout for sports and entertainment. That's why there were 65,000 at Garth Brooks. That's why next month when the Raiders play and into September, I mean, they're going full capacity. Uh, so ho- we're all hoping for the best. But I know it's a long-winded answer, but uh, we're just grateful. To be back on the field, 2020 was the worst-case scenario for minor league baseball. It, it can't get any worse. Uh, any case scenario you have, it can't get any worse than last year. When you, can't, when you never even get on the field 
nothing can be worse than that. So 2021 has been great. I know the guys are happy to be back on the minor league field, but they want to be on the major league field. When you look out at your roster right now, if you want to tell A's fans who they're going to be falling in love with at the big league level over the next two, three years, what one guy have you got your your eye on? I mean, we've had a few. Um, I still think our pitcher, Dalton Jeffries, he's one of the top prospects for the A's. He had some injuries in spring training, probably would have made the team out of spring training. Probably the most class professional athlete you'll ever meet. Uh, he's just a terrific person, but he's a right-hander. I assume he'll be called up in September unless there's some injuries between now and then. But he's he's the real deal. He's pitched uh, 59 innings in, in here in Las Vegas. He's walked only nine guys at 54 strikeouts. Uh, he'll be pitching in the next few days. Uh, he stands out more than anybody since uh, Lissardo was dealt, but still... The diamond in the rough still here is left-hander A.J. Puck. A.J. Puck's had a bunch of injury issues. He's 6'7". His stuff is awesome. So hopefully uh, the light's coming on for him now. And it's tough. He didn't pitch last year. So I would say Jeffries and Puck are the two that are definitely uh, – the A's definitely uh, have plans for them. Uh, once uh, I, I don't think Jeffries uh, – hopefully he'll keep pitching here. But for him, for his sake, hopefully he'll be up in the big leagues sooner than later. Well, Jim, uh, always appreciate speaking with you and talking some baseball and that kind of stuff. Uh, be nice for the fans to get out to the stadium, like you said, a, a two-week home stand, and you know, not too many home games left. But tonight, normally people would be excited about because it's Dollar Beer Night. But I know there's something else going on as well because I believe there's a return of one of the most popular people at the ballpark. Well, well not yeah. a person in this well, case. Well, I understand. But now we have $2 beer nights here, which is still uh, pretty darn good to promote. On July 29th and August 5th, yeah, we're promoting the next two days. Uh, Finn the Bat Dog will be back Saturday, July 31st. He'll be here for the last uh, nine games of this homestand. And then the other homestand, he'll be a part of this. So we're glad Finn's back uh, and Fred Hassan, his uh his uh, leader, so to speak, uh, his master, I should say. So, uh, yeah, we're glad to have Finn back. That'll be Saturday. Uh, we thank the fans for coming out this year in droves. We're still averaging over 6,000 a game, uh, over 200,000. We're uh, nip and tuck with El Paso for the best uh, attendance in AAA West. So the fans have been great. And what's really in our favor out here, we have an open-air venue. Yeah, and I, I know I've been out there. I haven't been out there as often as I'd like to have been with a lot of stuff, but got to try to get out there again. And I remember when they had the Finn the Bat Dog um, bobblehead night or something, and I had friends that were saying, well, we got to go to the ballpark tonight. It's a bobblehead, and that, that dog is mighty popular. <laughs> well, the players love him. Uh, the players will love to see him back out tonight. Uh, I know guys who played here in 19 really miss him. So it'll be great to have Finn, I uh, should say, out on Saturday. He'll be here game three of the series. So it'll be good to see Finn back. All right, so go out there tonight, enjoy those $2 beers, and, uh, of course, yeah. fireworks on Fridays, Finn the Bat Dog uh, on Saturday. Always a great time at Las Vegas Ballpark. And, Jim, always appreciate the time with you and, uh, you know, respect you and uh, wish you all the best. And uh, real quick, got to close it on this. What about the Oakland A's? What would that mean to Vegas if they come here? Do you think it happens? Well, first of all, the city of Oakland, the A's have been there since 1969. I mean, we're hoping they get something done in Oakland. I think eventually we'll have a major league team here. Uh, it's a tough question to answer because you really need a retractable dome stadium that, like the Diamondbacks have, so that's multiple years away from, from getting done. So we'll see how the next uh, few months play out. All right. Well, appreciate the time, Jim, and hope to see you soon out at the ballpark. 
And thanks again for playing Renegade. Appreciate it. Oh, you got it. Uh, I, I love Sticks as well. Just even though I, you know, like I say, I've seen him several times in Chicago, but you are the biggest Sticks fan I know, my friend. And uh, man, who knows? Maybe I'll see you at a concert again sometime too. So you know. I will be at Sticks in September when they're at the Venetian, so hopefully I'll see you then. I would be surprised if you were not there, my friend. <laughs> Jim Gemma there with the Aviators doing a great job out there. And uh, go check it out. Aviators got that two-week homestand here. So, uh, you know, always fun at Las Vegas Ballpark. Great food, great environment, and a quality product on the field. And this is a good time of the year to go see a, a AAA ball game, too, because you're always kind of looking like, who, what players from what teams are going to get those call-ups that might be instrumental in a team's run to or not to the playoffs, you know, at the end of the season. Yeah, it's always a good time of year, and it, things are a little different now with because the the call-up situation is different with the the forty-man roster like it used to be in September, where everybody would go up. But yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of guys going up and down between AAA, and always uh, check out. They said it, it, sometimes too, the end of the AAA season, you get that guy from AA that they want to give an extra week's look at, uh, so you can really see the future. That's one of the things that I always thought was actually interesting about AAA because by the time they get to the AAA championship game, it's full of a lot of times double-A and single-A players because it's not nearly the roster that got them in that position because of the call-ups and that, but always a good time. And uh, Aviators competitive this year, and uh, just nice to see the ballpark being used again because i got to tell you, I don't live too far from it, and driving by that thing all year long last year, never seeing a game, a concert, anything going on there, the battle for Vegas or anything, it was uh, it was kind of depressing. So, uh, but it's nice to see the ballpark lit up and activity going on again. And an empty stadium is as sad as an unplayed with toy. Uh, well, go to the Isle of Misfits toys and uh, bring them back, and it goes right back to season one again with the the Golden Misfits of the Vegas Golden Knights, where Clayton and I uh, got the pleasure of doing the first season. But again, Clayton, I know you've done sports talk shows before. I've done them for several years. So we can talk about all different sports, and I want to get your thoughts on this because apparently the SEC has approved, not shockingly, but unanimously, bringing in Texas and Oklahoma. Now there's been some talk of the Big 12 that they're going to find more money for them. If the SEC says yes, and they've already got these plans, I believe this move is pretty much all but done at this point. What does it mean... Does it mean the end of the Big 12? Does it mean littler pieces in the Big 12? Will we now have the power four conferences? What happens? What is your assessment of this situation? Best news possible for the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 will now elevate uh, in status and stature. But I think, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the end of the Big 12, but it could very well be the demise of the Big 12. And you think about what happened to the Big East. Remember when the Big East, they were one, it was, it was almost a power six, right? And you had, you had West Virginia, and you had uh, Notre Dame in basketball, and you had Syracuse, and you had those, those football-centric schools, Virginia Tech, Miami was in, was in the Big East. And when all of those teams jettisoned to the ACC, the other parts of the country, it diminished the quality of, of the Big East. And, I think and the Big East basically became just a basketball school. It became a school. basketball school, right? And they ended up getting, they got, you know, uh, Creighton and Marquette. You know, like, uh, they, they sort of expanded in a different direction and became a basketball power. And I think that's probably what's going to happen with the Big 12. I, I don't love 
the expansion of conferences to, to being 16, but I think it's coming. The biggest problem lies within the NCAA football championship and the rules and the protocols in which they put in place to have those champions. And to only have a four-team playoff is at the heart of this problem. And if you had a conference champion is in from the Power Five, which I think ultimately there's enough good football players you could expand to have a really have a Power Six with the with the addition of the American Conference, if, if you really put the resources into that. And I think going smaller is worse than than going bigger. In, in both Texas and Oklahoma, they have uh, board meetings on Friday mm-hmm. tomorrow, so they're expected to uh, to vote to join that. It's also interesting to me that the timing of all this is going on right as college athletes are now about to be able to get paid. And I'm wondering if does being in one of the Power Four conferences make it more lucrative to go to one of those schools since they are so good? Or we've seen a lot of the stuff for some of the smaller schools in California that uh, I, I know there's a, a couple girls on one of the softball or volleyball teams or something that they've already got a big Instagram thing in that. So is that necessarily going to be that you need to be in a power school to get the most money? Or is it just going to be creativity? Are there going to be courses and classes now on how to maximize your Hmm. earning potential on TikTok and other things? I mean, everything that we knew about college sports, including geographic location of where things were is completely gone now like you mentioned with the big east with creighton and schools like Mm -hmm. that with the big 10 and oh wait here's rutgers in maryland and it's like nothing forget about geography or anything like that anymore it's a completely different landscape all across college i don't think in terms of earning potential for an athlete that it makes much of a difference for the kids that go to texas and oklahoma texas and oklahoma are blue blood they are a high brand product anyway. So if they're in the Big 12 or if they're in the SEC, I think that matters not. What it could make a difference to is a school like Houston or Cincinnati. So if you're in Cincinnati, if you're Cincinnati today and you're the Bearcats, you're thinking to yourself, Big 12, Big 12, Big 12. If you're Houston, you're like, Big 12, get me into that higher bracket tiered money in terms of television revenue and exposure. And it worked for Baylor. Look at what Baylor's been able to do. It worked for TCU. Remember when they were a smaller conference, they went to the Big 12 and all of a sudden they became something. And that's, I think, what Houston and Memphis and Cincinnati are all looking at because now there are spots open in a power five conference the question will be does the power five in the big 12 maintain its status or does it become the big east you know it's interesting too because you bring up cincinnati and this just popped in my head this thought because we were talking earlier about unlv's got to establish what they want to be are you a basketball school or you're a football school where do you want to build your reputation in that cincinnati basically used to be a basketball school it was nothing nick van exel and people like that way back when Mm -hmm. They had so much success at basketball and with Huggins there when he was the coach in that, that then they morphed into becoming a pretty good football school as well. So when you're saying like UNLV's got to decide, it doesn't mean that down the road you can't have success in multiple programs, like you said with Baylor, but you've got to pigeonhole and be known for one. And then if you have success at one, the word gets out to the other programs as well. So, And, and I just want to get your thoughts on that. Do you agree with that statement? Because I hate when people say, well, they're a basketball school or football school. Ohio State and Florida played each other in the national championship in both football and basketball in the same season. Mm-hmm. You can be both, but I agree with you. But when I think of Cincinnati, I still think of when I was younger and it was a basketball school. Mm-hmm. Their football program was nothing. That is, a, that is a great point, Frank, in that you can morph 
one to the other. And in, in Cincinnati's case, they went basketball school to now they're basketball football. Look at Miami. Look at the University of Miami, the U. That is a football school first. It was a baseball school second. It was a track school third. Then it was a basketball school. But Jim Laranaga came in. It became a basketball school. So you can do it either way. But I think you're right. It is easier because of the resources that it takes to run a basketball program to go basketball and become a football program than it is the other way around. I, I Particularly say, if you're not already a a power. Like if you're like if you're Iowa and you're like a football school and then they they've become a better basketball school, that that's that's fine and that's easier if you're already a football power. But if you're not a football power, which UNLV, I think we can all agree, is not a football power. No. So start with basketball. Become a really, really good basketball school. Let basketball be your invitation to the Pac-12 when it becomes the Pac-16. Or let it be your invitation to the Big 12 when the Big, now it was an 8, now becomes 10 again or 12 it's a very hard numbers game to play frank in terms of their titles that's why it would actually be nice if they were just all and i know the pac-12 said they don't need 16 teams but if you're gonna have a power four just have them all get 16 teams whether they need the divisions or whatever Mm -hmm. and then we don't have to uh, the the big 10 can still be the big 10 whether it's got 16 or 12 or 10 or 8 or whatever it's like you don't have to change the name every time you do it because it doesn't make any sense right now but yeah have a little bit of symmetry have that cohesiveness and then admit, like, okay, one of these schools is going to play for the national championship. The other one, make your own junior championship. The also-ran conferences. What a, you're not going to call them that. You're going to try to make it sound more glamorous. But let's just be honest about what it is. And all these people that go, well, Vanderbilt, well, why would they want to be there? Why would Northwestern? Because they're still one of those conferences, and they're still getting a boatload of money. They are getting a boatload of money, and at least they have a chance. Like for for even as as ridiculous as it is to have Northwestern play in the college football playoff, or or Vanderbilt, if Vanderbilt goes undefeated in the SEC and wins the SEC championship, they're going to go, and and it's. It's still the SEC champion. And Northwestern's had quality teams here and there. I mean, it can happen. You know, mm-hmm. lightning can strike. It does seem easier in basketball. One player or two players can all of a sudden make a completely turn a program around. You know, long before there was Peyton Manning at Tennessee, there was the Bernie and Ernie mm-hmm. show. And, again, I'm dating myself. But, hey, I'm old. I, 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 I deal with it every day. But even for a, for a team like or a school like UNLV, if they went to an expanded Pac-12, 14, Pac-16, whatever you want to call it, you can still be a basketball predominant school and have success there. Look at Arizona. Arizona is a basketball school in the Pac-12. UCLA is a basketball school in the Pac-12. USC is a football school in the Pac-12. Right. They're, they're very rare that they're to Washington and Oregon. You think about being a basketball and a football program, or maybe Utah being a basketball and a football program. But most of them, they're either sort of either one or the other. And if you want to survive and be and be relevant and get that invitation to the to the Pac-12, being a very good basketball school is important to a lot of those other basketball schools in terms of what their national RPI is. And it's kind of funny too because you know when you when you talk about basketball or football school, and like I say, it kind of drives me crazy and people talk about that but it is a reality you can have some schools you could argue right now that from a success rate oklahoma's basketball program is ahead of their football 
but they will always be known as a football school. When they hired Lon Kruger, they basically threw so much money at him saying, make us competitive, make us something to do when football's not here, but they still concentrate on football. Even when their football program is down, they still consider themselves a football program. I think Oklahoma could win the basketball NCAA championship, and they would say, well, that was nice. Now when does football start? Yeah, it could be. But look at look at what they've, they've produced at Oklahoma, though. Buddy Heald, Blake yeah, Griffin, what, they, Trey they've Young. They've had great players, yeah. and they've had good teams that have been tournament teams in that. But people still don't think of and, them as a basketball it, it, school. And it's the same thing for UCLA. UCLA could win the national championship in football, and it's still a basketball school. You'd be like, oh, well. That was, that was nice. Yeah. That was how, nice. How many did John Wooden win in basketball? Exactly. Talk to us then. Exactly. But like I said, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with having an identity and, and starting. And that's what it, I feel like UNLV has really dropped the ball on, That especially when, when they were the only game in town. And now, now that they're competing for the entertainment dollar with, with the Aces and with the Aviators and with the Raiders and the Golden Knights and a potential NBA team and the potential of the Oakland A's and, and all of the prize fighting and MMA that goes on here, that you have to create that identity. And so just create it because Thomas and Mac can be electric again. And it takes a high profile coach with a couple of good recruits that you can get to stay here for more than one year. Well, and not to take a shot at UNLV because that's not my intent here at all. But I've literally heard people say, if you want to check out Allegiant Stadium, go to a UNLV football game. Don't try to go to a Raider mm-hmm. one or a Garth Brooks concert or something else where you're going to have to walk two miles to get there because the parking's a nightmare, a disaster, this, that, and the other. You know, when your selling point is come here because we have room for you, mm-hmm. that's not exactly what you're shooting for. Right. And, and like I said, you can, you can do it, UNLV. You can do it. It's there you for you. You can do it. Right? You, just, <laughs> you have to put the resources in and say, hey, we're going to make a conscious decision. And the number one selling point of our school is going to be basketball. And the number two selling point of our athletics program is going to be baseball. And then we're going to deal with football. The resources are in the starting gate. Oh, wait, that's the resources. So yeah, my bad. because they've, they've, got the, they've got the goods when it comes to baseball players. And, and they've got the, they, can, they can get the goods when it comes to basketball players. Absolutely. You can do it! All right. T.C. Martin Show. Check it out, tcmartinshow.com. Pictures, interviews, all sorts of stuff there. T.C. also likes to write stories and uh, let you know what's going on. And I'm sure he'll be posting something from down in Houston. Uh, he did not bring his garbage can, so he will not be beating the drum there because he said it's not necessary. He's probably going to go get some good food with Dusty Baker because um, Dusty Baker likes the food. I'm sure we'll see, we will see pictures of it all over the place. All right, when we come back, we are both big Olympic fans. We've talked about some of the stuff going on. I'll be watching again this evening as well. But the jewel of every Olympics, Summer Olympics, obviously not the winter ones, though it would be funny to watch a 100-yard dash on ice, Um, track and field, we're going to talk about that and some other things. Kind of give a look at that, because I know, Clayton, you are all over that, and I know I'm looking forward to the pole vault, because maybe the greatest pole vaulter of all time competing, it's not Sergei Bupka. I saw him live in Chicago once. It was awesome. He was so smooth. The guy that's around today... Just as smooth, and I don't see how you beat them, but unless it's pole breaks or something. We'll talk some more Olympics here. T.C. Martin Show, tcmartinshow.com. I got something for you. Here's the man, the myth. The oracle has spoken. The mouth. You hear me talking? T.C. Martin. What a whipping post. Yes. Almond Brothers. 
Well, the funk is out of the studio. It's down in Houston with T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank, my good buddy Clayton Hamilton, Numchuck Behind the Glass, playing music that I actually resonates with me. You know why? This, this is music for adults. Oh, yeah. That's why. Or in Numchuck's case, adulteresses as well. But, uh, you know, adults do enjoy it. So, yes. But uh, uh, going to get some Olympic talk here. Real quick, got to throw this stuff in because it is a little breaking news breaking stuff news. going on. You know, TC loves that breaking news sounder. Numchuck right on top of it there. You know, doing a great job for us today. Appreciate all the hard work that he's doing back there. But a little bit of news going on. Ancillary things. And I'm going to throw them one, two, or three at you. And then just give quick thoughts on each one. Rizzo going to the Yankees. Shocking. Looks like Westbrook is going to be going to the Lakers. Depressing. And what was the other one? I forgot. There was another one that I was going to throw in there as well. But, yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of stuff going that, on. So, it's, oh, Scherzer looks like he's going to the Padres. Yeah, that's disappointing. I The, the Padres, uh, the, uh, San Diego is the most overrated city in America to begin with you as, know, me, as a place. Me, me and my best friend are the only two people I've ever known that have gone to Petco Park and did not like it. Petco Park is ridiculous because you shouldn't build a new stadium that has restricted view seating, which it does. But it, it is hard to get to, and it's everything about San Diego, I, I know I'm in the minority, and everyone tells me it's the greatest place on earth, I, most overrated city in America. And so I don't really like seeing the Padres get better. I really don't like seeing the Lakers get better. So Westbrook to the Lakers, even though going the other direction, Harold, Kuzma, and uh, Contavious is Caldwell Pope, which I think makes the the Washington Wizards better. I think this is a good trade for the Wizards, uh, and it's a good trade for the Lakers because the Lakers are going to get extraordinarily better to have a facilitator and a guy that can score from the perimeter. But have, have the Yankees shifted their playoff hopes and World Series hopes now? See, with Rizzo and the shift, I think. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rizzo, I really like for them because Rizzo, at least, is a good, he's a contact guy. I, I wasn't crazy about Joey Gallo, which was the first domino to go to the Yankees because the Yankees have plenty of strike and miss guys. Yeah, he's a swing and a miss He's a, or a swing and a miss guy. He's feast or famine at the plate. He doesn't give you great upgrade in terms of center field defense so i i didn't love that i would have liked to have seen them go get a guy like charlie blackman from the rockies although i don't think he was uh, the, the the rockies are going to make him available but a player more of the charlie blackman ilk to the yankees makes more sense to me than a uh, joey gallo but i think rizzo really really helps their situation and he's a really good first baseman too i, mm-hmm. I don't think he gets enough credit for his defense he, he's a good defensive first baseman and especially since with the, all of the injuries that they've had at first base you know forward with uh, with vote with like all, all of the problems that they've seen there, he's done a, going to provide some stability. Now the question will be, do, do the Red Sox counter and get the Chris Bryant deal done to go to Boston? Could be interesting. Could be. Fun next hour or a couple hours. Well, I know the deadline. another thing that's always fun, and we could have done the whole two hours on this coming up, mm-hmm. but we didn't want TC angry down in Houston. So we're saving it for now. Olympics. Yes. We've talked about some of the sports that have been going on. I could cover a lot more of those as well. But track and field has yet to start. We are both huge track and field fans. Love the sprints. Love the distance races. Mm -hmm. I love the field events, you know. Uh, Al Order, a lot of people don't know who he is except, oh, he's a guy that won some gold medals. huh? Maybe the greatest Olympian from the United States of all time with all the golds he won and all the Olympics he appeared in. I like the hammer throw, the javelin, uh, different things out there. Pole vault is exciting. Uh, Vashtay Cunningham competing in the high jump once again. 
But track and field, what do you make of it? How excited are you? And what are your key can't-miss events, even though you don't have Peacock? Yeah, <laughs> there are there are a couple of can't miss events, and one we will start in the field because I know that you like the field and are big and ready for the pole. Well, I used to throw the discus back in eighth grade. Yeah, the, nice. <laughs> I'll order for for discus gold medals. Uh, the shot put Ryan Krauser and a fellow American Joe Kovacs probably going to go one two, but Ryan Krauser just set the world record in the U.S. Olympic trials for the shot put. And he knew it as soon as he threw it. He knew it, it as soon as he threw it. His exuberance, and, as soon as it left his hand, he was celebrating knowing that he had just thrown the throw and, of his life. And here's the thing. The shot put is 16 pounds. It is the same weight as a bowling ball, right? So if you want to know how far he threw it. And the heaviest bowling ball. Imagine this. You are at the free throw line of a basketball court with a bowling ball in your hand. You turn around and throw it through the hoop on the other side of the court, past half court, past the other foul line, into the court. That's how far the world record is with the shot put. So that's how far he's throwing a bowling ball from one foul line across half court, across the other foul line, into the hoop. That had put a hell of a dent in the, in the basketball floor. It was, but you, you, sometimes you lose perspective <laughs> no, on, no, on no, what these no, guys that, are doing. That's actually a really yeah. good analogy. And, yeah. and that's how far it is, 76, uh, 76 feet, 8 and 1 quarter inch. Yeah, we, we see basketball coaches saying, don't throw a pass that far because yeah. you're going to turn it over. I mean, think, this think, guy's think, throwing a 16-pound shot put. Yeah, think about the guys that throw, throw the basketball at the, the end of the quarter and come short of, of the hoop. Yeah. And this guy's throwing a, a bowling ball, in effect. That's, that's, that's a good analogy. I that, like that one. That is the one. And then on the track, I'm telling you, Frank, the race not to miss. Men's 400-meter hurdles, five of the six fastest guys in history are going to be in this race, including world record holder Karsten Warholm from Norway. It's really going to be against him against Rye Benjamin out of USC. And when you think of Norway, you don't think of sprinters no. and hurdlers and, you know, necessarily no. track guys. You don't, you Unless don't. you're talking a distance race or something yeah. more. And in the distance races, you're going to see the Ingebrigtsen brothers, uh, Philip and Jakob, uh, most notably other than, you know, their, their, their older brother there. But uh, but Jakob Ingebrigtsen is going to run uh, the 1500, he might run the 5000 as well. And here's a guy from norway that can beat the kenyans and he said that he became a runner because cross-country skiing was too easy it was just it wasn't a challenge so take he the skis a- off and let me run imagine we hear a lot of people saying how in california you're running the sand to build up your strength mm-hmm. imagine what running in snow right. does to your leg muscles yeah but yeah i tell you the 400 meter hurdles the carson warholm and it's rye benjamin out of usc and then allison de los santos from brazil chiron mcmaster out of the british virgin islands and abderrahman samba from Qatar and these guys every single one of them is capable of breaking the world record and that's five guys for three medals and one record now when it comes to something like that will we get the proper coverage and respect for it without a bunch of Americans in that field there well there will be rye benjamin I and mean, he he's the second fastest guy or, or the third fastest guy in history second fastest guy was kevin young former world record holder at carson warholm just broke but yes the, the track and field they are going to run all of the prelims the problem is they're going to run the prelims on nbcsn in the morning like three o'clock in the morning here and then they'll run the uh prime time they'll run the swim the uh the finals it'll be very much like the swimming coverage so you will get to see it if uh if you're up at three in the morning or dvr it uh to see the the semifinals and the the heats and whatnot 
But it should be, like I said, that's going to be a good race. And on the women's side in the 400-meter hurdles, Frank, it's Delilah Muhammad against Sydney McLaughlin, two Americans, outside chance for Anna Cockrell out of USC, and Femke Boll from the Netherlands. But the last three times that Delilah Muhammad and Sydney McLaughlin have run against each other, it's taken a world record to win. You brought up something else here that I don't think a lot of people really realize or think about that much. Because when it comes to the Olympics, because the fields are so big, and a lot of people that have no shot of a medal are still representing their countries because they get to be an Olympian from their country. But just like we see in the swimming and that sort of stuff, there are the preliminaries, and there's the quarterfinals, semifinals. Depending on how many people are in the field, you know, you might have more and more heats that you have to run. So when you watch these preliminaries and the semifinals and that kind of stuff, frequently the person that wins in the finals isn't necessarily one of the top people. Once they know they're in, you'll see guys back off and that sort of stuff. Some people want to win a race. Some people want a better time. Some people want to maybe play that mental game or whatever. But it is interesting knowing how much do you put out in each one Mm -hmm. of those preliminary races to make sure that you still have your best performance left. It's a fine line that you have to draw because you don't want to give too much and be burnt out mm-hmm. for the end, but you've got to give enough to make sure that you're in that final. Yeah, and, and you'll see that a lot in the distance races of try, how much how much energy can I conserve? And you'll see the, the people from some of the countries that, that are not favorites, and you'll see them going all out versus somebody that's not. But it's just about survive and advance, and especially in these hurdles races, trying to avoid disaster. You look at Omar McLeod, world record holder in the 110 hurdles from from jamaica he hit a hurdle in the uh jamaican trials out and, didn't, and, and didn't you qualify for the team and you see a lot of that sometimes in the relay races because you drop the baton or have a handoff that goes out outside of the zone or something like that you can be done before you even start and frequently in the relays the, the team that's in the first or second preliminary might be completely different than the team that you put on the track for the final. And what should be interesting and fun about the track events, Frank, is you know we had talked about how you weren't sure what to expect with the way the past year has has really played havoc with a lot of training and a lot of events that have been canceled worldwide. Folks on the track got a pretty regular schedule this year because the indoor season went off uh, pretty much without a hitch and the Diamond League resumed, and they were able to do I love these, the Diamond League. They were I able watched to that do so much. All of the Diamond Leagues leading up, and there was uh, eight Diamond Leagues leading up. So the, the folks on the track have had a relatively normal season in comparison to other Olympic sports. So these guys should be about at their at their peak, and I would expect maybe maybe fewer upsets in track than we've seen in swimming, fencing, you know, all of the other events. We've seen a lot of world records dropping in the swimming. I was wondering how it would be, but in the pool and that, maybe it's a little bit different without the fans. No fans in the stands for track and field. Will that affect anything as far as people getting up and sometimes that crowd brings you through or something and brings you to the finish line? Or because it's the Olympics, are we going to see world records dropping left and right? I think we have better shot in the sprints than you do in the distance races. I think those distance because races... Because those are tactical. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah, the distance races are, are going to be tactical. Sometimes, you know, in the Diamond Leagues, that you see people that are trying to run a qualifying time. So they'll have that pace setter. They will really try and get out and run a, a certain time. There are no pace setters. They're, they're in the Olympics. They're banned. No, no, like you're going to see in the Diamond Leagues or in anything else. So it's all tactical. And you also don't have that, that crowd push when you might need them on the backstretch of the last, you know, 200 meters or so. All right, let's get to one of the events that you know I'm really looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Can anybody beat Mondo in the pole vault? Mondo Duplantis out of the SEC, LSU, a uh, 
pole vaults for Switzerland, world or, or not Switzerland, for Sweden, a world record holder. And he's worn some LSU shirts and that kind of he, stuff in the past when he's been doing stuff as well. So, I mean, he's a proud Tiger. He is a proud Tiger national champion down there. But he at least has a competitor in, say, in world, uh, world champion Sam Kendricks. And he and Sam Kendricks have gone back and forth uh, over the past two, three seasons. And Kendricks is really, really, really good. good. And, he's and, just not as good and as DePlantis. And they've been 1-2, one, 1-2, two, one, two, one, two. But most recently, a recent form this year, it's been DePlantis 1, Kendricks 2. And that's been pretty standard for really the majority of the early season. But I expect one of those guys to break the world record. I don't know who, but I think that's going to be, that's going to be, as they would say at the BBC, a real ripper of a final. So if you could bet an exacta for pole vault, it would be a no-brainer? It would be a no-brainer. But you know what? It's going to be, that's one of those uh, that you're like, oh, man, I hit the exacta and it paid $8. Like, yeah. you know, it's <laughs> might, might pay like four twenty. <laughs> that's true. The women's pole vault, though, is going to be really good. Kathy Najat and uh, Sandy Morris uh, from the U.S. and uh, Katerina Stefaniti uh, from Greece, who trains at Ohio State and went to Stanford. Uh, the three of them are right at the top, and they've been trading wins back and forth among the three of them all season. So Women's pole vault, men's pole vault, going to be great. What about long jump, triple jump, things like that? Because, again, when you think of those events, you're always thinking of the sprinters doing so well, like the Carl Lewis's and Jesse Owens going way back and that sort of stuff. Seems to me like the long jump is more really the sprinter. The triple jump is a tricky thing because you've got to have the sprinting capability, but you've also got to have the dexterity mm-hmm. and everything else. It's a, it's kind of, to me, almost a, an underappreciated skill set that you have there. I know some people call it the hop, skip, and a jump, but when I watch it, it just amazes me how far these people travel and uh, hop skip and a jump which is what they called in 1896 john conley of the united states irishman out of boston won the very first gold medal in that event 1896 but in this year's uh, yulimar rojas out of venezuela is the premier favorite on the women's side in the triple jump she's going to be fantastic but javon harrison another lsu tiger sec represented huge in this uh, event he's going to do the long jump and the high jump and the last person, That's an interesting the last person to compete in both the long jump and the high jump was Jim Thorpe in 1912 at Stockholm Games. All right, so we have that gentleman competing in both of those events. What about the people that are competing in the decathlon, which used to be known as the world's greatest athlete? I don't know if there's jokes made about it these days with Caitlyn Jenner and everything else out there. I know John Belushi did the things of mm. years ago where I travel and I eat little chocolate donuts, and that's his, <laughs> his thing. Still one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits. But the decathlon is still one of the most grueling events, and you talk about everything. And what's interesting about the decathlon is it's not just how you do on every event because you're going to have strong events and weak events and that kind of stuff, but you got to make sure that if you want the gold or if you want to be on the on the podium at all, You've got to be at least proficient and decent in everything. Yeah, and you can't bomb out in the field events. You know, you only get three throws, and you only get three attempts uh, at each height in the high jump and the pole vault. So if you miss a height, if you don't get a score, or if you foul out in the discus, the javelin, or uh, where the shot put, uh, that'll completely ruin your chances. Shawnee Miller-Webo, who runs for uh, the Bahamas, she's going to be the favorite in the 200. Her husband, Michael uh competes for Estonia he should be uh, pretty prevalent in the decathlon but that his wife in the women's 200 
a lot of times you talk about the 100 meters being the race to see, but on the women's side, it's really the 200 meters between Shawnee Miller-Rebo and Dina Asher-Smith out of Great Britain, who's beaten everybody this year. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price from Jamaica, who's the returning 100-meter champion, and Elaine Thompson, who's the returning 200-meter champion from Jamaica, and and always uh, Marie-Jose Talou out of the Ivory Coast. So there's about 12 women that could win a medal in that race. And there's only going to be eight lanes. So somebody's getting left out in the semifinals. So all of that is going to be fantastic. Yeah. Well, like I say, I mean, we could talk 800, 1500, the decathlon, all that kind of stuff, uh, the, the marathon. But I know you wanted to talk about baseball as well. Yes. It was one more thing, though, before we move on about track and you think about how fast these guys are. Think about somebody like Trenton Holiday played in the NFL, right? And he ran in the, uh, in the Olympic trials. And every, all those football broadcasters used to say about him that he has world-class speed. Right? He didn't have world-class speed. Those football guys have eliminated in the semifinals or eliminated in the heats at the U.S. Olympic trial speed. So you're going to see real speed when these guys hit the track. Willie Gold had world-class speed Willie back Gold. in the day because he was a track guy who became a football player. Yeah, I'm, so I'm looking forward to that. Also looking forward to the baseball tournament. Some, some fellas that you will be familiar with on Team USA, the Todd father... Todd Frazier, playing third base uh, for Team USA, got released by the Pirates earlier in the year. And also Daniel Robertson, who used to be the closer for both the Yankees and the White Sox, he's going to be on that team. And and the baseball guy that I'm most sad I'm not going to get to see was Homer Bailey. Homer Bailey was on Team USA that got him through the qualification, pitched so well that the Oakland A's signed him to a contract. So he's unable to play and unavailable. But that baseball tournament should be pretty good. Also, Ian Kinsler going to play for Israel. You know, you haven't seen Ian Kinsler in a while, or Ryan LaVarnway, another guy playing for Israel. And then maybe see some of the uh, stars of the future as well as a lot of minor league players mm-hmm. are going to be there. So maybe somebody that you'll see at Las Vegas Ballpark soon. And Eddie Alvarez, who got a goal, or got a silver medal in uh, short track speed skating at the uh, Winter Olympics, going to make his summer debut second baseman in the Marlins organization. So there you go. A lot of Olympic coverage, and uh, I know I'm looking forward to it all, and uh, hopefully uh, you will as well. And you don't if you remember all the names or whatever but when you see a name out there and you're going hey wait a second and we went through the whole track and field without talking about shikari yeah no no it's a shame she's not going to be there no nope, eh, her olympic dreams went up in smoke that's true all right that is going to do it for us thanks to jim Gemma for joining us thanks to my good friend clayton hamilton good seeing you again man yeah it was fun it's fun coming out of retirement for the day it was good yeah. you know i think uh think uh tc's gonna be gone again uh, next weekend thursday and friday so maybe we can do it again yeah, a little more a uh, little more stuff yeah we'll find out what happens I'm chris Wynn will join me tomorrow ken thompson also going to be on with us and who knows who else we know who's not going to be here tc martin he's down in houston banging the garbage can with dusty baker Thanks for listening. Check out the show, tcmartinshow.com. Talk to you tomorrow at 2.